Hello again, everybody. This is your host, as always, Christian Bassar of the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations podcast. Today, what I will be talking to you about is the Soviet Union's role in the Middle East, specifically in Syria, but we'll also be talking about Soviet role in the Middle East in general. Uh, Also talking about Egypt, because the Soviet Union was honestly more involved in Egypt than in Syria, I would argue. So it's very important to talk about the Soviet, uh, Soviet-Egyptian relations, but overall the focus will be on uh, Soviet and Syrian relations. Uh, I have talked about Russian and Syrian relations before. I have done a previous episode about that, talking of course about Russia's ongoing role in the Syrian civil war since 2015. And also I've talked uh, recently, uh, more recently, about the role of the, so- of the civil war in Russia's arms trade. You know, how has the Russia's Russian involvement in the Syrian civil war influenced or helped or its um, its arms trade? So right now we will be talking about the about Soviet and Syrian, but again, a little bit more broadly, some Soviet Middle Eastern influence or relations during the Cold War period, and let's get right into it. But before that, I want to give a little bit of a message, and we will get right into it after that. Dear listeners, thank you so much for listening to this podcast, and I hope that you've been enjoying the thoughts given in the episodes. But I would like to ask if you would consider making a pledge to the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations podcast on Patreon. I have many projects in mind for this podcast, and the books, paper, and so on needed to produce the episodes will not be free. Help keep historical thoughts flowing so that we can interpret the past and learn from it. You may pledge any amount that you like, and whatever you choose to give will be appreciated. Thanks a lot, and let's get back to the episode. So what's with this beat going on in the background? That's to indicate a so-called footnote. Um, On the original script of this podcast, I actually do have footnotes. So uh, footnotes that I wanted to include, but maybe they don't quite deal with the topic I'm talking about at the moment. So these are just uh, side side notes and things like that. So I have this little beat just to distinguish uh, between the main... Uh, podcast content and a little bit of a footnote that um, might give a little bit more information that you might be interested in. Kind of a nice beat too. Attribution, of course, is given in the podcast description. The Soviet Union's interaction with Syria can be placed into four categories. Political, military, economic, and cultural. Soviet activity in Syria was attributable to the USSR's strategic situation during the Cold War and, of course, its ever-present rivalry with the United States. Syria provided a base for Soviet influence in the Middle East, allowing the USSR to counter the USA and its allies in NATO and Israel. Before specifically focusing on Soviet-Syrian relations, we will look at how the whole Middle East region became a Cold War theater. Soviet-Egyptian interaction must also briefly be analyzed, as I talked about before, as this relationship was more important to the Soviet Union than that with Syria. There are also some key parallels between the Soviet-Egyptian and the Soviet-Syrian relationships. So let's talk about the Soviet focus on the Middle East. Before the end of World War II, the Soviet attitude towards the Middle East was markedly different from its later policies. 
R.D. McLaurin, writing for the American Institutes for Research in 1975, argued that in the aftermath of the Communist Revolution of 1917, the Soviet Union's priority was to pacify its southern border by abandoning Tsarist-era ambitions there. They did negotiate some deals with Iran and Turkey at this time, but the Middle East was less important than consolidating control over the old Russian Empire. This situation changed after the Second World War, when the Soviet Union took a much more active role in the region. The Cold War between the communist and the western capitalist worlds was starting. Entire world regions became battlegrounds between the competing capitalist and communist ideologies, as seen in the American theory of the domino effect, which posited that if one country fell to communism, its neighbors would follow. It's got to start somewhere. This competition led to proxy wars in Africa, Southeast Asia, and political dramas in Europe. The Middle East was also drawn into the communist capitalist strategic struggle by January 1956, the date of the 20th Congress of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, which took place under Nikita Khrushchev, CCCPSU for short. <laughs> Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, CCCPSU. So the 20th Congress defined Khrushchev's foreign policy, emphasizing the Communist Party's ideological opposition to capitalism. Khrushchev believed that the colonialist histories of the United States and other, quote, imperialist capitalistic powers lived on through their participation in arms races, formation of anti-socialist blocs, and building military bases close to the Soviet Union's borders. Khrushchev also said that the West's donation of weapons to foreign countries was a grand capitalist conspiracy. This aid, the Soviet leader proclaimed, was, quote, granted on definite political terms and on the basis of the recipients joining American-supported alliances. However, Khrushchev also believed that the capitalist world was in crisis and that the old colonial empires were collapsing. The destruction of this system was, quote, on the order of the day, as he said during the, his speech to the 20th Party Congress. His speech to the 20th Congress spoke about the goal of, quote, world revolution, the fortification of the great socialist camp, by developing trade and cultural exchange between the USSR and other socialist-oriented countries. Marxism-Leninism was the CPSU's key to building world peace, exhibited, exhibited through the so-called five principles of non-interference, non-aggression, building positive foreign relations, peaceful coexistence, and economic cooperation. Quoting Vladimir Lenin, the General Secretary Khrushchev predicted that all countries would eventually transition to socialism, creating a peaceful, prosperous world. To implement this Leninist dream, Nikita Khrushchev's foreign policy plans at the 20th CPSU Congress can be broadly summarized under the following three points. Number one, the CPSU had to build ties with other communist countries, of course, such as Vietnam, China, and Yugoslavia, and also neutral countries, such as Sweden. Khrushchev even wanted to increase cooperation with capitalist countries, hoping to enhance cooperation in science and other fields. Number two, the USSR's defenses were to be maintained, quote, at the level demanded by pre present-day armaments 
and science. Number three, Khrushchev wanted to support countries which, quote, stood for peace by not joining military blocs and alliances. He specifically placed the Middle Eastern states of Syria and Egypt into this category. So any country that didn't want to get involved by joining a military bloc or an alliance, even perhaps a, not joining a communist one, he still wanted to support these countries because they didn't want to get involved in some kind of a bloc or an, an entangling alliance, if you will. Point three would be put into effect, Khrushchev claimed, through free, no-strings aid from socialist countries. According to this plan, needy countries would get modern equipment from the socialist states, free of any political or military obligations. Hopefully. This approach allowed the USSR to have an appearance of resisting colonialism and capitalism. Moscow claimed, for example, that it had not forced or coerced Egypt into any agreements. <laughs> Khrushchev cited an Egyptian application, Al-Akbar, which had recently written that Russia recognized, quote, the people's rights and aspirations and does not demand their adherence to military pacts or blocs. Three years after the 20th CPSU Congress, from January 27th to February 5th, 1959, the 21st Extraordinary Central Committee of the CPSU Congress was held. This 21st Congress focused on the Soviet Union's communist education system as both its national industrial and agricultural production. However, Khrushchev did make a few comments reflecting the foreign policy initiative of the previous 20th Congress. He accused the United States and the United Kingdom of making, quote, preparations for war, preparation for aggression, by building military bases around the world. Khrushchev asserted that the American plan behind this development was to have its allies fight any potential war with the Soviet Union, allowing themselves to safely conduct the war from behind. And Khrushchev said these words, It is hoped that the British, French, Germans, Turks, Greeks, Italians, and the peoples of other countries on whose territories the American bases are situated have realized what lies in store for them. The anti-imperial Soviet Union, he, he suggested, was more peaceful, claiming that in these words, We do not pursue war aims. We have no military bases around the United States, either in Mexico, Canada, or in other countries adjoining the United States. At that point, Nate, Canada was, uh, was allied with the United States, so that, <laughs> that wouldn't necessarily happen, of course. Khrushchev admitted that the United States had a military advantage over the Soviet Union, including the feared right to fly over Soviet territory, Khrushchev said. But this was due, what to, uh, but this was due to what he saw as American aggression and expansion of the state's military infrastructure. So we're starting to see the Middle East as a Cold War theater. This, so this idea, uh, so these ideas of um, anti-colonialism. Um, supporting peaceful, neutral states, um, resisting capitalism, resisting the capitalist world that Khrushchev talked about in the 20th and the 21st uh, CC, CPSU Congresses, this opens the door for the Middle East to become a Cold War theater. So it was uh, Khrushchev's foreign policy outlined at these two Congresses was a reaction against Western efforts to influence the Middle East. The previous decade had seen the formulation of the Truman Doctrine on March 12, 1947. 
In the Truman Doctrine, American President Harry Truman called on his government to support Greece and Turkey against Soviet interference. This doctrine also committed the United States to an overall policy of protecting democracies against, quote, totalitarian regimes, giving the Americans license to intervene in regional conf conflicts outside its immediate neighborhood. As part of its, this initiative, Truman wanted to send both financial and military aid to Greece and Turkey. Khrushchev's speech to the 20th CPSU Congress in January 1956 occurred in the midst of the anti-communist CETO alliance of 1954, the Baghdad Pact of 1955, and American President Dwight Eisenhower's announcement of the Eisenhower Doctrine on January 5, 1957. The CETO alliance was otherwise known as the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization. Formed in September 1954, it aimed to protect Southeast Asia from communism. However, the Philippines and Thailand were the only local countries that joined, in addition to Great Britain, France, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, and Pakistan. CETO was not very effective, having failed to prevent South Vietnam from falling to communism in the 1970s. It also didn't allow for much intelligence sharing between partners, hindering the alliance's ability to counter internal subversion. After the Vietnam War, it became defunct in 1977. The Baghdad Pact was a locally created alliance signed on February 24, 1955 between the Iraqi and Turkish governments, and it was ratified by their legislatures two days later. The background to this agreement goes back to 1941, when Soviet and Allied military units were sent to stop a pro-Nazi coup in Iran. But Soviet-Allied cooperation in this theater ended almost immediately after World War II was won. From December 1945 to February 1946, Soviet forces remained in northern Iran, hoping to create an autonomous state of Azerbaijan, neighboring on Soviet Azerbaijan. The Soviet Union also claimed the Kars and Ardan provinces in northeastern Turkey after a rejected proposal to create a Soviet-Turkish alliance, which would have given the USSR unrestricted access to the Mediterranean Sea. Jamil Hassanli, an historian from Baku State University, has written a very extensive account on Turkish-Soviet relations at the start of the Cold War. Hassanli says that the idea of a Soviet presence in Iran and Turkey was causing concern as early as 1944. World War II was still being fought, and the Soviet Union was still allied with Britain and the United States. But rifts were starting to show in this alliance, and this eventually led to the rivalry of the Cold War. The USSR was achieving major victories against Nazi Germany, and the Western Allies were concerned about possibly losing access to Iranian and Turkish oil resources. The United States thus identified Iran and Turkey as key areas of Soviet interest. And for more on this, you can look at uh, uh, Hassanli's book, Stalin and the Turkish Crisis of the Cold War, 1945-1953. In response to these Soviet provocations in the Middle East, the Iraqi Prime Minister Nouri el-Said suggested in August 1954 to form an Arab League Collective Security Pact. This alliance was to oppose communist forces directly, and its attitude was to never, quote, collaborate with communist countries. It was proposed that once the pact was formed, signatories could ask for American and British support 
the pact would be Western-oriented because it would be very difficult to resist the Soviet Union as neutral or non-aligned countries. The alliance was going to be open, and any state that could contribute to the Middle East's defense was encouraged to do so. Once a fourth country signed it, the Baghdad Pact would be composed of several different governing bodies. There would be a ministerial council, on which member countries' leadership, ministers, and ambassadors would attend, and there would be military and counter-subversion committees. Uh, this would essentially be the Baghdad Pact's armed wing. There would also be an economic committee for economic cooperation and development. Such activities, like those of the Marshall Plan in Europe, were seen as, at, were seen as being as important as the Pact's military planning. And finally, there would be a secretariat, which would help the, facilitate the Pact's operation. The United Kingdom was the third country to join the Baghdad Pact, doing so on, on April 5, 1955. Britain saw the alliance as a deterrent against the USSR and its previously mentioned attempts to encroach upon the Middle East's northern borders. The Baghdad Pact would defend NATO's extreme right flank, and it would allow Western countries to co coordinate with w Middle Eastern nations more effectively. By the end of 1955, Pakistan and Iran joined the Baghdad Pact. The alliance now stretched from Turkey to Pakistan, which effectively blocked the Soviet Union from the Middle East. The United States did not join the Baghdad Pact, but it did support it, proclaiming, quote, a threat to the territorial integrity or political independence of members of the pact would be viewed by the United States with the utmost gravity. The Americans also sent observers to the ministerial council meetings, and they had seats on the military, counter-subversion, and economic committees. The Baghdad Pact led to various supportive and cooperative actions between the signatories. On the military front, in June 1957, Britain promised to send financial aid to develop the members' militaries. A radar network covering the alliance's territory was planned, Britain sold four destroyers to Turkey, and Iraq acquired British fire planes. All members also took part in, in November 1957 military exercises with naval and aerial assets. Economically, the Americans and British contributed millions of dollars, and even non-member Western states such as Canada and Australia donated money to the pact countries. However, the pact was weakened significantly only three months after its creation, when Iraq's Hashemite monarchy was overthrown in an anti-Western coup. The country left the Baghdad Pact in 1959, at which point it was renamed the Central Treaty Organization, or CENTO. Although the United States offered military aid to members, CENTO was more of an economic alliance than a military one. The organization formally dissolved in 1979, after two events. Pakistan gave up its membership, and the Iranian Revolution happened, sending Iran on an anti-Western, anti-American direction. Though the Baghdad Pact lost one of its co-founders very early, it is still a significant part of the Middle East Cold War history. The USSR warned that, quote, aggressive military blocs, such as the Baghdad Pact, were forming in the Middle East due to Western coercion, in which Western coercion was supposedly meant to preserve colonial control. The USSR also threatened the Iranian government that such alliances, or instruments of aggression, would strain Soviet-Iranian relations. 
Iran's membership in the Baghdad Pact prevented the Soviet government from having a free hand to either annex Middle Eastern territory or expand, it, or expand its interest in the region. The Western-friendly Baghdad Pact was a direct affront to Soviet interests in the region. After the Middle East became a focus of Nikita Khrushchev's policy at the 20th CCCPSU Congress, U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower gave a speech on January 5, 1957, that became the guiding document of the Eisenhower Doctrine. The president argued that Russia had, quote, long sought to dominate the Middle East and that such designs on the area had originated in the Tsarist period. Echoing the purposes of the Baghdad Pact, Eisenhower named the Middle East a crucial area in the Cold War against international communism. He directly countered Khrushchev's accusations regarding imperialism, asserting that Americans were happy to see colonialism ending in the Middle Eastern countries. However, Eisenhower did warn that the region could become unstable, especially as its political landscape changed. This could open the way for communists to seize power there. He noted that the Soviet government was not interested in the region's oil, as the USSR was in fact an oil exporter. The Soviet interest in the region, Eisenhower believed, lay in the potential of spreading the communist worldview. If the so-called Red Plague reached the Middle East, it could more easily spread throughout the world. The Middle East was a central place, a, quote, crossroads of the continents of the Eastern Hemisphere, especially with the Suez Canal's ability to let ships bypass Africa. In addition to the ideological dangers of communism taking over the Middle East, such a scenario would sever the Americans and their allies from vital economic resources in large parts of Eurasia. To highlight the Middle East as an ideological theater of the Cold War, the American president cited cultural influences. The world's largest three religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, all came from the Middle East. He argued that the region was the cradle of religions that cherish freedoms and human dignity, but atheistic, quote, materialistic communism did not share these values. The Eisenhower Doctrine called on Americans to take seriously the communist madness in the Middle East, especially if Baghdad Pact members were threatened. Eisenhower wanted to slate $200 million dollars, for 1959, for measures such as cooperation with the United Nations, military cooperation with local allies, including the deployment of American troops, and economic development. The Eisenhower Doctrine thus became like a Marshall Plan for the Middle East. Secretary of State John Foster Dulles said that the quote, the dollar was a powerful weapon against communism. He suggested that American aid could even be sent to Egypt and Syria, potential rivals who had not signed the Baghdad Pact, but they were not communist. If this would help stop communism spread, Egypt and Syria could be brought on board as recipients of economic aid. Vice President Richard Nixon agreed, that by, agreed by saying that allies' economic development was just as important as military aid. This assistance, according to Eisenhower's logic, would help local non-communist countries resist Soviet advances themselves. Quote, in the Eisenhower Doctrine, it says this, Any lack of power in the area should be made good, not by external or alien force, but by the increased vigor and security of the independent nations of the area. Such thinking explains the United States' fervent support of and involvement in the Baghdad Pact, even though the country was not a full signatory of that agreement. 
Through his doctrine, Eisenhower linked America's security with potential for confrontation with communism in the Middle East, requesting authorization to use the, mil to use the U.S. military in the region to repel communist aggression. It must be noted that the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations and Armed Services Committees denied this appeal of using uh, U.S. military force in the Middle East, uh, noting that any anti-communist deployment would need to be consonant with the U.N. Charter. Moscow perceived the Eisenhower Doctrine in the same way as it had regarded the Baghdad Pact. The Soviet government predicted that Eisenhower's policy would enslave the Middle East and transform it into an American protectorate. Khrushchev accused the United States of wanting to replace the weakening British and French presence there with its own form of post-colonial colonialism. Rami Ganat has noted that in February 1947, the United States sent military and financial aid to Turkey and Greece. The British would, nor would have normally sent this aid to push back against communist forces there. But due to its very strained financial resources as a result of World War II, the British government asked the Americans for aid. This American takeover of, of a British obligation could have given credence to the Soviet idea that the United States was simply replacing the old colonial powers with its own. In February 1957, the Soviet foreign minister, Dmitry T. Shapilov, listed the Eisenhower Doctrine as proof that the Americans would use the Middle East as a military beachhead. Soon after these accusations, in April 1957, the American policy led to confrontation with the Soviet Union over the fate of Jordan. It started when the Jordanian king, Hussein I, purged elements of supposed Soviet sympathizers in his government, including attacks on and arrests of political leftists and Arab nationalists. The king accused international communism of trying to subvert him. One of the supposed aspects of this conspiracy was a proposed union with leftist-leaning Egypt and Syria, which was perceived as a communist plot against Jordan, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and other Arab countries. The United States extended support to King Hussein, using the Eisenhower Doctrine as justification. Between April and late June 1957, the Americans sent $30 million worth of military and financial aid to Jordan. The U.S. 6th Fleet was dispatched to the Middle Eastern part of the Mediterranean on April 25, 1957. It consisted of two aircraft carriers, a battleship, two cruisers, two dozen destroyers, two submarines, and 1,800 marines. Naval exercises caused most of this force to be deployed back to its Italian base on May 3rd, though the marines remained in the eastern Mediterranean. The Soviet Union denounced the Sixth Fleet's mobilization as a sign of planned American, quote, colonialist oppression against the Middle Eastern nations. It also denied that international communism was the cause of Jordan's internal crisis. It turns out that the U.S. Sixth Fleet will be a somewhat of a recurring character in this um, in this podcast episode um, because it's important because the Soviet Navy would later deploy a force in response, the Fifth Escadra, which we will talk about later. So, though I want to focus on the USSR and Syria, uh, Soviet Syrian relations. It is necessary to talk about Soviet Egyptian relations. The Soviet Union was 
I would say, more involved in Egypt than it was in Syria, and that relationship was more important, so we will be talking about that right now. But first with a little bit of pre-Soviet history. Egypt had become a British protectorate in the year 1914, and in the early 1920s, an Egyptian communist movement was formed in resistance to colonial control. Though Egypt achieved formal independence in 1922, the British maintained significant influence there for decades. The communists were still active in the former British colony, enjoying popularity during World War II and having some influence among the working class, the military, and the police force. In the 1950s, Soviet propaganda was praising Arab communist parties for being, quote, very advanced, numerous, and influential, helping to cultivate the national and class self-consciousness of Arab workers. The, the reality was very different, though, as Egypt's communists were never able to gain significant traction under the anti-communist government. The dream for an Egyptian communist proletarian revolution ended in July 1952 when a free officer's coup took over. One of the plotters, Colonel Abdel Nasser, became Egypt's prime minister in 1954. He concluded a treaty with the British Empire which forced its soldiers out of Egypt. Um, and two years later, Nasser was made the president of Egypt. Nasser maintained that Moscow was behind the communist movement in his country and his government continued suppressing Egyptian communism. For a more thorough account of communism's history in Egypt from the 1920s to the 1950s, I can recommend uh, the second chapter of Rami Ganat's book, The Soviet Union and Egypt, and also John McHugo's book, Syria, A History of the Last Hundred Years. But after the Free Officers' Coup, Egypt took a surprising turn towards the Soviet bloc. Though the Egyptian government was suppressing local communists, it was very much against the Baghdad Pact. Iraq was an Egyptian rival, and Nasser viewed Turkey as the, quote, main auxiliary of Israel. Nasser proposed an alternative to the Baghdad alliance, preferring to lead his own Middle Eastern bloc. As evidence of this, the Iraqi government was even told to get permission from the Egyptians before it could sign any agreements of its own. In October 1955, Nasser formed numerous multilateral alliances to counter the Baghdad Pact. For example, an Egyptian-Syrian-Saudi alliance improved relations with Yemen and Jordan, though, as we noted, King Hussein I uh, rejected a full union with Egypt. And he also, and under Nasser, Egypt went for a third separate alliance with Yemen and Saudi Arabia. Arab nationalists rejoiced at Nasser's rejection of the Baghdad Pact. He was perceived as an Arab leader against imperialism, which was consistent with his reputation for being progressive as well as anti-conservative. In early 1955, the Egyptians hoped to buy American weapons, desperately needing them to counter Israel. But the United States rejected this request. For one, the British were wary of weapons shipments to their former Egyptian colony, and the fact that these weapons would have been used against Israel could not have impressed the Americans. Snubbed, Nasser had to fulfill Egypt's military needs elsewhere. Having been confronted with the Baghdad Pact's wall of unfriendly nations to its south, 
the USSR now had an opportunity to build relations with the Egyptian government, which did not join the anti-communist alliance, and Egypt also needed weapons. On September 27, 1955, the Egyptians accepted a weapons shipment from communist Czechoslovakia. The Soviet Union sponsored this deal, which was one of the USSR's first Middle Eastern Cold War maneuvers. Arms shipments are a clear sign of support towards a prospective ally, and Egypt's internal anti-communist policies were not enough to deter the Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia from proceeding with the deal. The Soviet Union could also establish a military presence in Egypt, such as at Port Said, Solum, Mersamatru, and Alexandria, which would become convenient ports of call for Soviet naval ships. And <laughs> I'm not an Arabic speaker, so I, I apologize if I butchered some of the pronunciation on, those, on some of those names. And the Soviet Union was also able to sign further military deals with Nasser's government. Through the 1955 deal, the Egyptians received an estimated $250 million worth of military equipment, 200 warplanes, which included 150 MiG-15 fighters and 40 Aleutian-18 light bombers, 100 T-34 tanks, numerous armored personnel carriers, or APCs, self-propelled artillery, mortars, and six submarines were promised in addition to trucks and small arms. Another slightly smaller deal was struck in 1957, which helped replace the losses suffered during the Suez Canal crisis of 1956. There were yet four more subsequent arms, arms sales, taking place every two years between 1959 and 1965. Through them, Egypt acquired more advanced tanks and fighter aircraft, such as the MiG-19 and the supersonic MiG-21. By 1967, Egypt had received between 600 and 800 combat aircraft from the communist world. The Soviet Union also sold Egypt surface-to-air missiles, or SAMs, and minesweeper ships. The total value of all six of these arms deals, 1955, 1957, 59, 61, 63, and 65, was approximately $1.5 billion. The sale of such a great amount of military equipment shows that the USSR was anxious to ensure that its Arab ally or partner could defend itself. It's important to remember that the Soviet Union never got involved in direct combat to aid Egypt, but the Soviet Union still did go to great lengths to protect the Arab country diplomatically and replace its wartime losses during three specific conflicts with Israel. The first was the Suez Crisis of 1956. The background to the Suez Crisis, just briefly, on July 26, 1956, Nasser nationalized the company in charge of the Suez Canal, the channels which, which was constructed in 1869 between the Mediterranean and Red Seas. In response, the British, French, and Israeli governments invaded the Suez a few months later on October 29th. The Eisenhower administration condemned the action, fearing Soviet intervention. The USSR had recently repressed a rebellion in communist Hungary, thus there were concerns about the Soviet reaction in the Suez. Indeed, the USSR did warn Israel, France, and Britain to abandon their plans. Moscow even threatened to fire nuclear missiles upon the three invading countries. Faced with this threat and enjoying little support for the mission, the aggressors withdrew from Egyptian territory. 
The Six-Day War of June 1967 was the second Egyptian-Israeli conflict that the Soviet government watched very closely. This war started on June 5th when the Israeli Defense Forces, or the IDF, launched a massive military operation against Egypt. Israel was responding to Nasser's amassing of troops in the Sinai Peninsula, his removal of UN troops from that region, and his blockade against Israeli ships trying to access the Straits of Tehran. Syria, Jordan, and Iraq were also drawn into this conflict, forcing Israel to fight a multi-front war. However, Israel survived, and its Arab enemies were defeated. The war worked out well for Israel, which occupied the Sinai Peninsula, the Golan Heights, and the West Bank. Egypt suffered the brunt of the Israeli assault. According to the International Institute for Strategic Studies Military Balance Report from 1967, Israeli airstrikes hit 19 Egyptian airbases. The Egyptian military reportedly lost 340 combat aircraft, 4 ships, 600 of the army's tanks, and at least 15,000 troops. Kenneth M. Pollock, a former military analyst for the CIA and National Security Council, has written the following about the Soviet reaction to Egypt's losses in 1967. Quote, The Soviets, who had also been deeply embarrassed by the poor performance of the one of their most prominent clients, quickly replaced virtually all of Egypt's lost equipment. And Kenneth Pollock wrote this in, um, in his book, Arabs at War. A third war began when Egypt, now under the presidency of Anwar Sadat, and Syria returned the favor, preemptively attacking Israel on October 6, 1973. The so-called Yom Kippur War was very different from the previous conflict because this time Israeli forces suffered massive, massive casualties on both the Egyptian and Syrian fronts. Soviet-supplied anti-air missile systems also prevented Israeli warplanes from achieving total air superiority. It must be noted, however, that though the Israelis might not have had complete control of the skies, they still performed extremely well against the Egyptian Air Force. The Egyptians didn't use their air assets to a great extent, largely limiting them to conducting hit-and-run attacks against Israeli ground forces. The Egyptian command was afraid of committing planes against the superior Israeli Air Force. Egyptians' pilots' orders were thus very restrictive, which compounded their lack of experience. Israeli pilots con conducted almost seven times more missions, and they shot down 172 Egyptian fighter planes while losing only between five and eight. Kenneth Pollack notes that Soviet anti-air systems were also very inefficient against the Israeli uh, aircraft, and even worse, they, quote, brought down somewhere between 45 and 60 Egyptian aircraft during the war. After the initial shock, the IDF was able to regain the initiative, pushing deep into Egypt and Syria. Following the deaths of 8,500 Arab soldiers and 2,800 Israelis, both the United States and the Soviet Union helped negotiate a ceasefire on October 22nd. A few months later, the Suez Canal's eastern bank was returned to Egypt, and the Egyptian-Syrian offensive proved to Israel that its Arab neighbors could still fight effectively. In this way, the Yom Kippur War was a diplomatic victory for Egypt that helped reverse some of the losses of 1967. And it's important to note the Soviet and U.S. role in helping to negotiate a ceasefire. 
The Six-Day War and Yom Kippur War's effects on Egypt provide an important parallel to the situation in fellow combatants Syria, which also suffered significant losses. The Soviet Union, for example, helped both of its Arab clients, or partners, however, whichever word you want to use, rebuild their militaries after 1967 and 1973. More information will be given later on the Soviet role in Syria during these conflicts and their, in their aftermaths. In addition to helping to develop Egypt's military, the Soviet Union contributed to the Arab nation's infrastructure. During Egypt's tensions with the West over arms shipments and the Baghdad Pact, plans were made to finance the construction of the enormous High Aswan Dam. Both the United States and Britain refused to finance the project in 1958. So, Nasser once again approached the Soviet Union. On October 23, 1958, a financial deal was struck. The Soviet Union would loan $80 million worth to Egypt for 12 years at 2.5% interest. After about 11 years of construction, the 366-foot-tall dam was inaugurated on January 15, 1957. In total, the project cost about $1 billion to build. The Aswan Dam project was the Soviet Union's first, quote, economic penetration of the Middle East. A Soviet-Egyptian trade relationship was also developing at this time. George Linsowski has noted in his book about Soviet uh, relations in the Middle East, notes that by 1958, three years after the first weapons sale, Egypt's exports to the Soviet Union were almost equal to trade in the reverse direction. Six years later, Egypt sent $142.6 million worth of goods to the Soviet Union and bought $93.7 million worth in return. Though the USSR lost money on this trade, they obtained very valuable Egyptian cotton in exchange for selling aging, obsolete military equipment to Egypt. By sending this old equipment to the Egyptians, the Soviet military saved money on maintenance and storage costs. The Soviet Union hardly needed Egypt as a trade partner, for the country could produce enough cotton and oil to fulfill its own needs for those raw materials which it was also getting from Egypt. As a result, the Soviet-Egyptian trade relationship constituted only 3% of Soviet international trade. However, the trade with the USSR was vital for Egypt. Egypt was heavily reliant on Soviet experts as well as its weapons. In 1970, Egypt sent 38% of its exports to the USSR and 22% of its imports were from the Soviet Union. R.D. McLaurin notes that the Egyptians did miss out on some benefits through their trade relationship with the USSR. He says, quote, in his book, The Middle East and Soviet Policy, he says, Egypt became a microcosm of the difficulties encountered in trade with the Soviet Union. Soviet dumping and re-exportation led to lower prices. Diversion from Western markets to Moscow meant loss of convertible currencies and threatened potential loss of traditional markets, and Soviet goods were of inferior quality. Soviet-Egyptian trade was valued at $673.8 million during 1970. Finally, Egypt did provide a market for the Soviet Union's petroleum industry. In 1969, for example, a deal was struck in which 700 Soviet experts would be sent to Egypt to drill 40 oil wells. 
In May 1971, the Soviet and Egyptian governments cemented their partnership with a treaty of friendship and cooperation. The document was wide-ranging, and it was mandated to be active for 15 years before re-evaluation. The treaty promised cooperation between the two countries in areas as varied as defeating colonialism, advancing socialism, or at least, quote, reconstructing society along socialist lines, as Egypt had been doing. And it also included expanding trade connections and promoting cultural and media exchanges. So this was largely a diplomatic document, but it had some ideology in it too. So again, talking about defeating colonialism and advancing socialism. The Soviet Union continued its commitment to train the Egyptian military as well, and each side would not enter an alliance, quote, directed against the other high contracting party. This friendship was not to last for very long, however. Abdel Nasser had died in September 1970, just a few months before the uh, friendship treaty was signed, and his vice president, Anwar Sadat, subsequently replaced him. Though Sadat did sign the friendship treaty with the USSR, all was not well between the two countries. Just before the Yom Kippur War, the Soviet Union had reduced the amount of weapons it was selling to Egypt, and it also refused to sell the latest military equipment. Kenneth Pollack had uh, explains that the Soviet Union was now in detente with the United States, and Moscow was reluctant to give Cairo the latest weapon systems, fearing that this would encourage Sadat to go to war. In 1981, Amnon Sela wrote a book called Soviet Political and Military Conduct in Middle East. He listed key priorities in Soviet relations with Arab countries. Quote, The Soviet government still adhered to a modicum of restraint, a. not to allow any one Arab country to become so strong that it could go to war against Israel alone, and b not to allow the Arab countries a configuration of their armed forces such that they would be tempted to go for an all-out offensive war. So here, this is the, the situation where, where the Soviet Union, yes, they wanted to have good relations with Egypt, but also they didn't want to give Egypt too much, uh, too much of a push or encouragement to attack Israel. So... Um, so this was kind of a, a rock and hard place. Do you support Egypt or do you not support Egypt? So this is kind of a middle way. We support Egypt. We um, we talk about defeating colonialism. We um, train the Egyptian military and so on. But we won't give enough for Egypt to attack Israel by itself. Consequently, the Egyptian president expelled many Soviet advisors and military technicians in July 1972, just a year after the Friendship Treaty was signed. However, he did not throw out these those engineers needed for the most advanced equipment. After 1973, however, the political situation completely changed. Sadat was much more conservative than Nasser, and he wasn't so anti-Western. He wanted to move Egypt in a different direction, and perhaps the clearest sign of this was his signing of an American-supported peace deal with Israel on March 26, 1979. Up to that point, Egypt had relied on the Soviet Union for its military equipment, but now Sadat wanted more flexibility, suggesting that the Americans could help supply Egypt's forces. 
On March 14, 1976, Sadat finally scrapped the Soviet-Egyptian Friendship Treaty. The next year, Sadat decided that, for a decade, Egypt would not make payments against its $11 billion debt to the USSR. With his abrogation of the 1971 Friendship Treaty, all remaining Soviet military personnel were expelled from Egypt indefinitely. This decision was a disaster for the Soviet Union, which had threatened nuclear war on Egypt's behalf in 1956. But now the Americans were taking over the Soviet Union's long-held role. This change forced the USSR to put more into its relationship with Syria, its other prominent Middle Eastern partner. And this is where we get to the, the crux of the, of the podcast episode, the Soviet-Syrian relationship. And so we'll go into several aspects of the relations between the Soviet Union and the uh, Syrian, uh, Syrian government. And first we'll look at the political aspect. Okay, so a Soviet-Syrian relationship started very early in the socialist period when the Communist Party of the Soviet Union helped form the Syrian Communist Party in 1925. During World War II, the Soviet Union ordered the Syrian communists to cooperate with the colonial powers who were common enemies with the Nazis. The USSR continued to influence Syria after the war, when Syria became a front in the Soviet Union's ideological war against so-called capitalist imperialism. The Communist Party of the Soviet Union found an ally in the Syrian Arab nationalist movement, with, again, another common enemy, but this time the common enemy of Western colonialism and interference. Michel Aflac, Ba'athism's founder, was himself a communist when he studied in France during the 1930s. So we're going to talk about Soviet compatibility with Syrian Arab nationalism. So the Soviet Communist Party's anti-colonial, anti-imperialist, and socialist mentality were important components of the soft power in Soviet foreign policy. This is because it resonated with workers and post-imperial parties outside of the Soviet Union's borders. So, for example, in 1968, an Arab nationalist, socialist-oriented government took control of Iraq. Four years later, in 1972, it signed a treaty of friendship and cooperation with the Soviet Union. And if we, by quoting uh, Dewey's book, The Soviet Union in the Arab World, this friendship treaty between Iraq and the Soviet Union created a, quote, strategic and ideological alliance between two regimes bound by a common revolutionary bond against Zionism and Western imperialism. In brief, the movement known as Baathism, an Arabic word meaning revival or renewal, became the primary home for Arab nationalists. Baathism originated in Syria before World War I, when the region was still part of the Ottoman Empire. After the war's end and the Ottoman Empire's dissolution, the French took over Syria according to the French and British Sykes-Picot Agreement of 1916. The French gains uh, encompassed the territories of modern Syria and Lebanon, while the British Empire got control of Palestine and the Transjordan. French control over Syria was cemented on July 23, 1920, after a battle in Damascus between a native Syrian and the colonial army, in which the Syrians were roundly defeated. This defeat motivated the Baathists to continue working towards Arab self-rule, 
The Syrian movement's goal was to oust foreign governments and to create a pan-Arab unity. Under the guidance of its founder, comrade Michel Aflaq, Ba'athism spread from its Syrian base into Iraq, Jordan, and other Arab countries. In addition to Arabic unity and freedom, Ba'athism espoused democracy and socialism. Party literature declared that the movement's, quote, social base was to be the working classes which were looking for a united, socialist, and democratic Arab society, end quote. Unlike Soviet socialism, Ba'athism was not Marxist-Leninist because its Arab nationalist foundation trumped the internationalism of Marxist communism. Arab socialism also focused less on proletarian struggle, emphasizing national and social unity. In Ba'athism, Islam was a critical mark of Arab identity, even for non-Muslim Arabs, and it was also perceived as an inherently socialist religion, reinforcing the Arab nationalist socialist policies. It is very interesting to note that Michel Aflaq, the founder of Arab Ba'athism, was actually an Orthodox Christian, not a Muslim. But he saw Islam as a great cultural mark of, of Arab culture or, or an achievement. Um, and he was also very wary of division among Arabs along religious lines. Despite these differences between Arab socialism and Marxism-Leninism, Ba'athists and the Communist Party of the, C of the Soviet Union did have much in common. They were both anti-colonial and anti-Western, as seen in Khrushchev's speech to the 20th CPSU Congress and in Ba'athist's resistance to colonial powers. And even though Islam was a critical aspect of Arab nationality, the Ba'athist parties were secular, like the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Syria became independent in 1946 after decades of anti-French demonstrations, rebellions, and the French authorities' heavy-handed rule. Yet Syria had to contend with much internal division. George Lansowski has noted that Syria's parliamentary political system was divided into four ideological political camps. Quote, so the four camps were these. Pan-Arab socialist, Ba'athist. Greater Syrian which was, uh, or the Syrian Social Nationalist Party, or the SSNP, that had elements similar to fascism, including armed wings. Three, Islamic, which is a Syrian branch of the Egyptian-based Muslim Brotherhood, created in 1945 and 46. And the fourth was communist. The SSNP won the election of July 1947, and the party's leader, Shukri al-Kuatli, became Syria's first post-colonial president. Arab nationalism of the Ba'athist variety, however, was still an important influence in Syrian political life. Ba'athism was particularly attractive to Syrian academics and young military recruits who resented Western influence. They saw Abdel Nasser and Egypt as key in the resistance against the West, and both the Syrian Ba'athists and communists benefited from this trend. The, po the popularity of radical, anti-Western politics and the development of the Cold War in the Middle East worked out well for the Soviet Union. This was in part thanks to Khrushchev's speech at the 20th CPSU Congress, which had legitimized the existence of such, quote, anti-imperialist movements. Soviet backing gave the Syrian Ba'ath a boost in moral support and confirmed ideological compatibility between the Syrian and Soviet governments. By the mid-1950s, Ba'athism had gained significant power in Parliament, thanks to Michel Aflaq's popularity with young people, a merger with a rural-based party, and the ouster of an unpopular dictator in 1954. 
though the Ba'athists did not gain actual control of the country until another coup on March 8, 1963, their powerful position allowed them to influence foreign policy so that a relationship could grow between the Syrian nationalists and the Soviet Union. For instance, Michel Aflaq himself was education minister for a time, and a Ba'athist named Salahaddin al-Bitar was Syria's foreign minister when the Soviet Union ties were first being formed. Now we have to talk about the so-called United Front. In September 1947, Soviet Central Committee Secretary and Communist co Cultural Ideologue Andrei Zhidanov had categorized international politics as a conflict between the communist camp based in Moscow and the Washington-centered capitalist imperialist world. In Zhidanov's model, a third option of neutrality was impossible, forcing all countries to be either communist or capitalist. So this was Zhidanov's form of you're with us or you're against us. However, by the early 1950s, the CPSU, or the Soviet Union's Communist Party, started supporting non-communist, anti-Western, nationalist, socialist-oriented groups, including the Syrian Ba'athists and Nasser's Egypt. This united front policy against the West was written into the Soviet Communist Party's draft platform. It posited that socialist and non-socialist nations had the same goals, and that they could all contribute to peacebuilding. As part of this mandate, the Soviet Union saw the Syrian Ba'athists as natural allies, and it provided a way for the USSR to build relations with Syria. Later during the Cold War, in the 1970s, the CPSU even encouraged the Syrian communists to merge with the Ba'athist party, hoping that a one-party system would be created. Soviet involvement in Syrian politics was also about legitimacy. The Soviet Union was the first Marxist-Leninist state in the world. If it did not support socialist movements abroad, even those that weren't truly communist, the Soviet state would have lost political capital and legitimacy as a revolutionary government. However, spreading communist ideology was not the main reason for Soviet activity in Syria. Syria and other Middle Eastern states that cooperated with the USSR, for example those that did not sign the Baghdad Pact, were valuable tools in the containment of, deterrence against, and resource denial to the Western countries. As shown earlier, the Soviet Union cooperated with Egypt even though it persecuted communists within its borders. This shows that realpolitik and strategy, not ideology, were the key motivators in Soviet policy towards Arab countries. As with the Egyptians, one of the Soviet Union's first major interactions with the Soviet government was the conclusion of an arms deal in January 1956. Diplomatic relations were officially created the following August. To demonstrate this new cooperation, Two Soviet naval vessels were deployed on diplomatic visits to the port city of Latakia in October 1957. As a relatively new, independent post-colonial country, Syria felt under pressure, especially after the Suez Canal crisis near, saw nearby Egypt suffer a Western invasion very soon after its own freedom from colonial rule. Arab expert John McHugo has also cited American fears of Syria becoming a, quote, Soviet satellite. In response, Syrian Defense Minister Khaled el-Azim emphasized the country's non-aligned stance, but he also believed that the United States was forcing Syria to choose between the, quote, new imper American imperialism and the communist Soviet Union. The Syrian Ba'athists preferred the latter to the Americans, and such anti-Western attitudes pushed them towards the USSR. 
In fact, on September 12, 1957, the Saudi Arabian king had urged the Americans not to take too hard a position against the Syrian leftist government for fear that it would build relations with the Soviet Union. Now that we've talked about the United, uh, United Front, I want to talk about another thing that was called a united something, the United Arab Republic. And the creation of this republic should be covered very briefly. Um, we've seen that fears of Western aggression encouraged Syria to lean on the Soviet Union, but Syrians also wanted a closer relationship with Egypt, which faced similar threats. Egypt also had the popular, charismatic Arab nationalist Abdel Nasser as its president. Uh, a UAR treaty, United Arab Republic, uh, was thus concluded on February 1st, 1958, and though and through it, Egypt and Syria were blended into one country. The agreement was ratified three weeks later, and through referendums in both countries, Nasser was named the new nation's president. The partners hoped that now the Eisenhower Doctrine would no longer threaten Arab unity. But Syrian officers seized power in Damascus on September 28, 1961, and they broke away from the UAR. So this United Arab Republic lasted only about three years. Syrian grievances against the Egyptian-dominated Union were extensive. Syrian businessmen faced significant restrictions. Syria's diplomatic offices were reduced to the status of consulates. Military officers were constantly being redeployed. Syrian parties were ordered to dissolve. And there were the practical difficulties of blending French practices in Syria with British ones in Egypt. Egypt and Syria's brief union was not of great consequence to their relations with the USSR. Weapons sales, financial aid, and other diplomatic events took place between the Soviet Union and the two Arab nations before, during, and after the UAR's existence. Yet Nikita Khrushchev did express support for the union, and the Soviet leader endorsed Nasser as the main figure of Arab nationalism. After all, Nasser was popularly seen as such, and he had opposed the former colonialists during the Suez Crisis of 1956, which gave the socialist world an important Cold War victory. At the same time, Egyptian control of the UAR was of some concern to the Soviet Union because the Soviet government feared that the good relations it had recently built with Syria would be diminished or even soured. Carrying on with, the, with studying Soviet and Syrian relations, we must talk about Israel. The Arab-Israeli conflict was a key aspect of the USSR's relationship with both Syria and Egypt. The Soviet Union started supplying both countries with weapons at almost exactly the same time um, in response to Western or Israeli pressure. Israel became a chapter in the Cold War just like Korea and Vietnam. For although no communist forces fought directly in Arab-Israeli wars, that theater still became an area of contention between the Soviet Union and the United States. David W. Lesh has noted that part of this rivalry was the perception of Israel in socialist communist circles as a proxy of Western imperialism. This belief was very strong in Syria after the Ba'ath Party took control in 1963 with its radical anti-imperialist and pan-Arab ideology. The Soviet Union refused to accept such threats to an Arab ally, just as the United States adamantly supported Israel. However, the Soviet leadership was also very wary of letting a major conflict between Israel and the Arabs escalate. Direct confrontation with the United States was out of the question, especially because the Americans were superior to the Soviet Union in terms of conventional and nuclear warfare. This same imbalance has forced, had forced Khrushchev to withdraw nuclear missiles from Cuba in 1962. 
The Soviet Union also helped broker diplomatic initiatives meant to curb Arab-Israeli violence. This included Resolutions 242 and 338 of the United Nations Security Council. Resolution 242 was passed on November 22, 1967, which ordered the Israeli military to leave the territories it had taken during the Six-Day War earlier that year. Resolution 338, which was passed on October 22, 1973, not only ordered a ceasefire ending the Yom Kippur War, but also reaffirmed Resolution 242 and called for the start of peace negotiations. By participating in these processes, the USSR was able to exert influence upon the strategic Middle Eastern zone, at least until the Americans became the primary peace broker in 1979. And the until then, the USSR was also able to help save its Arab allies from a defeat in their conflicts with Israel. Another Syrian coup occurred on November 13, 1970. Syria fell under the control of General Hafez, Hafez al-Assad, the former defense minister, who had major disagreements with the government over intervention in Jordan. He also wanted to prepare Syria for war with Israel, instead of focusing on the nation's economy as the previous administration had done. On October 6, 1973, three years after the coup, Assad launched his attack against Israel in conjunction with Egypt's own offensive. Assad hoped to reclaim the Golan Heights region, which Syria had lost in 1967. Israel's conquest of the Heights was a great embarrassment to the Arab world, especially for a Syrian Ba'athist government which touted Arab unity as one of its main purposes. Syria's ability to defend itself was also much in doubt. Finally, according to analysis from the Middle, Eastern, Middle East Research and Information Project, or MIRUP, 80,000 Syrian refugees had also been forced from the Golan Heights. Any one of these factors could have made Assad wish to reclaim the region. But increasing the likelihood of war were the Israeli air raids of September 1972, which applied pressure upon Syria not to support Palestinian movements. The Yom Kippur War went well for Syria at first, as it reclaimed much of the Golan Heights, but an Israeli counterattack recaptured it and even posed a potential threat to Damascus and Assad's government. The Israeli Defense Force also attacked Latakia and Tartus, focusing on infrastructural and oil facilities. The Syrian government estimated $386 million worth of damages, and civilians were killed in Israeli airstrikes upon Damascus and Homs. Syria lost an estimated 8,000 of its 350,000 active troops during the 1973 war. The most reliable reports for Israeli estimated losses cite between 25 and 2,700 killed in combat. The Soviet Union's involvement in the conflict went further than just sending anti-air equipment to bolster Syria's defensive capabilities. According to the Jewish Policy Center, the Soviet Union's leader, Leonid Brezhnev, contemplated sending troops to Syria's defense. Considering that the Soviet Union was thinking about drastic steps, however, Hafez al-Assad's attitude towards Israel was both useful and problematic for the Soviet Union. Although he adopted resolution 338, two days after it passed, Assad continued a war of attrition against Israel, unwilling to negotiate directly with Israel through American mediation. It was a stated goal of Assad's government to, quote, keep Israeli reserves mobilized and paralyze Israel's economy. This goal posed a problem for the USSR, which had called for peace between Israel and its Arab proxies in the past. 
The Soviet Union also initially favored the multilateral Geneva framework for peace negotiations between itself, America, Israel, and the Arab world. But Assad kept to his policy of not negotiating with Israel, especially if the Geneva meetings would lead to separate negotiations that neglected his own country. The Soviet Union's wish for Syria to be involved in the in the Geneva process changed in 1977 when the American, Israeli, and Egyptian governments discussed the possibility of peace talks without Syrian involvement. Assad's fears of a separate, quote, Pax Americana had been confirmed. The USSR was pleased with Syria's refusal to be involved in the Geneva proceedings, and it continued to support Assad despite his protracted conflict with Israel. Soviet backing was especially evident when the two countries engaged in hostility over Syrian anti-air missile sites and Israeli support of Christian Falange's militias in Lebanon. The Lebanese crisis started in April 1981, and combat occurred between Israeli and Syrian forces from June 6, 1982, until the crisis's end three weeks later. During the Israeli intervention, the Soviet Union supported Assad obsessively against Israeli aggression with perceived American help. In this is how it was um, it was shown in propaganda. It was seen as an act of Israeli aggression. But the Soviet Union also delivered weapons and increased its naval presence in the Eastern Mediterranean during the crisis. On October 8, 1980, shortly before the Lebanese crisis, the Soviet Union and Hafez al-Assad's government signed a Treaty of Friendship and Cooperation. Aidid Dawisha said that Syria had become the, quote, linchpin for Soviet influence in the area. The Soviet Union had lost its foothold in Sadat's Egypt, especially after the American-brokered Camp David Accords between Israel and Egypt in 1979. The Treaty of Friendship allowed the USSR, through Syria, to counter the improved Egyptian-Israeli relations as explicitly implied in the treaty's text. And I'll read a little bit of that. The Union of Soviet Socialist Republics and the Syrian Arab Republic determined to give a firm rebuff to the policy of aggression pursued by imperialism and its accomplices, to continue their struggle against colonialism, neocolonialism, and racialism in all their forms and manifestations, including Zionism. Article 6 was a de-escalation clause which ordered the Soviet Union and Syria to coordinate in countering any threat to security or peace. The Friendship Treaty of 1980 thus provided a mechanism for the Soviet Union to diminish the importance of American diplomatic power in the Middle East. Very shortly after this agreement was signed, Syrian-Jordanian relations deteriorated due to Jordanian support of the anti-Assad Muslim Brotherhood. Fearing another conflict within the Arab world and subsequent Israeli intervention, the Soviet Union was able to use Article 6 to force Assad to withdraw after he had deployed forces on the border with Jordan. Moscow had a legal prevention through which it could directly communicate or even apply pressure upon Damascus for the sake of de-escalation. This provision lessened the, admittedly already very small, likelihood of Syria going to the United States to resolve its conflict with Israel as Egypt had done. The Treaty of Friendship could also deflect the Muslim world's complaints against the USSR for the invasion of Afghanistan in 1979. Quoting again from the treaty, The Syrian Arab Republic respects the peace-loving foreign policy pursued by the USSR, which is aimed at strengthening friendship and cooperation with all countries and peoples. Hafez al-Assad actually supported the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, and in return the Soviet Union gave, um, forgave some debt, 
and also Syria abstained from the UN vote meant to denounce Soviet policy in Afghanistan. In addition to these moral points, the Soviet-Syrian treaty included articles aimed at practical collaboration. Almost exactly like the earlier Soviet-Egyptian friendship treaty, it provided provisions for exchange and cooperation in economic, cultural, and trade aspects. Military cooperation was another priority, and according to Article 6, again, both countries committed themselves to mutually countering any threats and restoring peace. The tenth point was similar, calling for military cooperation to increase Syria and the Soviet Union's, quote, defense capacity. And like with the Egyptian agreement, the Soviet Union and Syria were forbidden to enter any alliances that posed a threat to the other signatory power. Finally, this agreement was to last for 20 years, until the year 2000, before renegotiation, indicating Syria's importance in Soviet Middle Eastern strategy. I should definitely note here, we're going to skip ahead about 35 years to 2015. In August 2015, Russia and Syria were negotiating sort of the terms of Russia's military assistance to Syria during the Civil War. And in the documentation in August 2015, it act that documentation actually references this Soviet-Syrian treaty from 1980, saying that uh, this latest agreement is going to build upon the provisions of the Soviet-Syrian treaty, 35 years later. So moving towards 1991 and towards the post-Soviet period, Soviet-Syrian relations had some troubles during Konstantin Chernenko's administration. Konstantin Chernenko was only in power in the Soviet Union from 1984 to 1985. For example, the USSR entertained strengthening relations with other Arab nations, which would lessen Syria's importance to the Soviet Union. There were also plans to hand over the anti-air missile systems in Syria to the Assad government, indicating, quote, Moscow's decreasing readiness to take risks on Syria's behalf. And that's a direct quote from Ephraim Karsh's 1988 book, The Soviet Union and Syria. However, Konstantin Chernenko's government also recognized Syria's interests and, quote, central role in Lebanon, and it supported its rivalry with the Palestinian Liberation Organization, or PLO. When Chernenko died on March 10, 1985, Syria, in fact, went through three days of mourning. Under the new leadership of Mikhail Gorbachev, the USSR's foreign policy went through the changes of the so-called New Thinking Paradigm. This was a significant break from Gorbachev's predecessors, for he was skeptical of the Cold War Soviet propaganda regarding imperialism and capitalism. In 1988, he said that a country would not cause wars or be imperialist just because it was capitalist. Democracy was a limiting factor in capitalist societies, he explained. Andrei P. Tsukankov writes that his, this new perspective on the capitalist world encouraged a diminished importance on arms procurement and defense spending. He argues that the withdrawals from Eastern Europe and Afghanistan in the 1980s, quote, could now be presented as a net gain in a general calculus of creating a favorable international environment. The new thinking paradigm was intended to strengthen socialism within the Soviet Union. But without complete Western recognition or cooperation, it did not work as Gorbachev had hoped. It did not prevent communist regimes from falling in Eastern Europe and ultimately the USSR itself in 1991. 
Gorbachev's interactions with Hafez al-Assad's government were largely the same as before. The two countries were still signing arms deals. The Soviet Union still supported Syria publicly in its relations with Israel. And despite the new thinking policy, the Soviet Union still saw the United States as a competitor in the Middle Eastern region. Yet, like Chernenko, Gorbachev developed relations with other Arab countries, including conservative, so-called non-radical ones, like the United Arab Emirates. The Soviet Union indicated a slightly diminished focus on Syria by stating that the Israeli situation was an Arab responsibility. Stressing that only a political solution would be acceptable for fixing Syrian-Israeli relations, Gorbachev denied Assad's request for enough arms to achieve, quote, military parity with Israel. The Soviet Union was withdrawing from its Cold War Syrian commitment, which was consistent with the new thinking policy. At the same time, Moscow and Jerusalem improved relations, and many Soviet Jews were permitted to move to Israel, causing concern in Damascus. This forced Syria to find other allies. Andrew Kreutz commented that this move prompted Assad to improve relations with Egypt, and it even caused him to support the United States in its 1991 war against Iraqi President Saddam Hussein, who was a fellow Ba'athist. However, we must note that Iraq and Syria had had major diplomatic disagreements surrounding the PLO. Syria also supported Iran during its war with Iraq from 1980 to 1988. The Soviet Union, in fact, expressed concerns about these aspects of Syrian policy. So that kind of sums up the Soviet and Syrian uh, political history between uh, during the Cold War. So, <clears throat> again, just to summarize very briefly... So you see the Soviet Union seeing, um, perceiving the Syrian Arab Republic as, you know, again, connecting with, with Ba'athism a little bit. Um, and even though communists may have not been very powerful in Syria, uh, like they, they weren't really throughout the rest of the Arab world either, but Ba'athism was still sort of friendly enough to the ideas of communism. They were anti-colonialism, they were anti-imperialist, and, and so on. So... This was part of that. So the Soviet Union was able to see Syria as a bit of a, a proxy um, in its, you know, Cold War against the United States and thus associated and thus um, with the U.S. ally, Israel. Um, and the Soviet Union treated Egypt the same way. So just like with Egypt, the Soviet Union sell, sold a lot of weapons to, uh, a lot of weapons to Syria um, and they also had a treaty of friendship, which included um, military cooperation and uh, diplomatic diplomatic aspects, diplomatic articles, and so on. So, and but also, yeah, and you have support of Syria during its um, wars against Israel, but never explicitly direct military support. You know, they weren't going to go to war to with uh, with Israel or with the United States, especially over over Syria. But still, this was Syria was a useful proxy or a useful ally in the Middle Eastern region, considering the Cold War context. So, talking about geopolitics and so on, the so very closely tied to that, we have to talk about military and strategic dealings. So, military involvement in the developing world conflicts, whether through troop deployments or weapon sales, was a good way for the Soviet Union to increase its power abroad. After World War II, the USSR had, had also had excessive military equipment, which it could offer to uh, any progressive third world regime. 
With the Soviet Union's political penetration of Syria came arms deals between the two countries. As I noted earlier, the first such agreement was in January 1956. But, as with Egypt, Syria also bought weapons from other communist countries, including East Germany and Czechoslovakia. According to the United States, these military transfers were giving Syria the possibility of launching offensives. Before this time, Syria and the other Arab countries were undersupplied, and this deficiency provided the Soviet Union with a chance to insert itself into the region. And so, one way that the, that the Soviet Union was able to use Syria militarily was to use Syria as a Soviet naval base. So, aside from the goodwill visits of Soviet ships to Latakia in September 1957, the Mediterranean Sea also became a key place where the Soviet Union could project power against the United States and its allies' navies. In April of that same year, 1957, the Americans had deployed their 6th fleet to the eastern Mediterranean during the Jordanian crisis. But the American force was a constant presence in that body of water. According to George Lynchowski, quote, about 5% of the total of 800 active U.S. military ships, unquote, were in this in the Mediterranean Sea. This force included two of America's aircraft carrier strike groups as well as nuclear missile armed submarines. Speaking of these submarines were A.A. Koryakovsev and S.L. Tashlikov, Russian historians from the Military Academy of the Russian Federation Armed Forces General Staff. They said that the 6th Fleet was the most dangerous threat to the Soviet Union's southwestern flank. The Soviet Union had to play catch-up with the Americans in setting up a naval presence in the Mediterranean naval theater. Between 1964 and 1967, there were sporadic, quote, episodic Soviet developments and maneuvers in the area. Vladimir Zaborsky, a retired Captain First Class and former head of operations management of the Soviet Naval Chief of Staff, has written about the Soviet deployments to the Mediterranean Sea. He notes that during this early period of the Cold War, submarines would independently conduct patrols in the, in the sea for about three or four months. Small groups of ships would form, known, known as mixed squadrons, referencing their composition of fleets from the Baltic and Northern fleets. A first mixed fleet was formed in May 1965, made up primarily of ships from the Black Sea Fleet. But in December 1966, the naval commander-in-chief Admiral S.G. Gorshkov argued that the current mixed structure and limited commitment in the Mediterranean was impeding combat performance. More was needed to effectively counter the American Sixth Fleet and other nearby NATO forces. Gorshkov's requests to restructure the Mediterranean naval forces were largely dismissed until June 14, 1967, immediately after Israel's six-day war with its Arab neighbors. June 14, 1967 was the date when Naval Command Order Number 0195 was issued. This order formed the 5th Escadra, otherwise known as the 5th Squadron, or the Mediterranean Fleet. This brought organization and increased strength to Soviet naval forces present in the Mediterranean. Vessels were transferred into the 5th Escadra from the Northern, Black Sea, and Baltic fleets, and they would serve there in four- or five-month rotations. By the early 1970s, the 5th Escadra was made up of 35 to 60 ships, with higher numbers on station during the warm seasons. Zoborski described the force's everyday composition, quote, three to five multipurpose rocket and torpedo submarines, and a group of eight to ten diesel submarines. 
a group of 8 to 12 surface warships for ocean zones, cruisers, destroyers, anti-submarine and reconnaissance ships, landing ships, which could hold a battalion of maritime soldiers aboard, and a detachment of 15 to 20 special purpose ships and auxiliary vessels. End quote. The Six-Day War emphasized the need for better Soviet organization in support of its Middle Eastern strategy. After the Arab world's defeat in this conflict, the 5th Escadra's capabilities were enhanced with the addition of amphibious landing craft, naval aircraft, and submarines capable of firing cruise missiles. The battle group eventually became a well-equipped, balanced force with minesweepers, logistical support, and anti-submarine units. The inclusion of troop ships showed preparation, or at least the appearance of such, for direct military involvement in land battles. In 1979, for example, the fleet was even augmented with two aircraft carriers, the Minsk and the Kiev, which conducted drills all throughout the Mediterranean Sea. During its deployment, the 5th Escadra mainly surveyed the American Mediterranean forces, which was primarily done by submarines. Tupolev's 16 bombers were also used for this purpose, but they were painted in the colors of the United Arab Republic or Egyptian militaries with Soviet crews inside. The 5th Escadra also had AGIs, which were ships with electronic equipment that could gather intelligence. Primordia-class vessels were specifically built to collect information through antennas, cameras, and tracking equipment, and then process the intelligence on board. Such units had been used in the Mediterranean before 1967, but after the Six Days War, their operations great were greatly increased, especially the collection of data along the Israeli coast. A good measure of the Escadra's increased importance comes from a report that the Central Intelligence Agency completed in 1971 on the Soviet Union's foreign military activities. In this report, entitled National Intelligence Estimate, The Uses of Soviet Military Power in Distant Areas, the cumulative days of Soviet and American navies on deployment were compared for each year between 1965 and 1970. In 1965, the Soviet Navy was estimated to have spent 4,007 cumulative days on Mediterranean deployments during the so-called mixed Soviet squadrons era, while the Americans, on the other hand, spent 18,011. So <laughs> the Soviet Navy in 1965 was in the Mediterranean was spending four, about 4,000 days on, uh, on deployment, while the Americans were spending 18,000. In 1967, the year of command number 0195, the Soviet Navy had doubled its time in the region. Three years later, these, develop these deployment times were finally surpassed the United States, having spent 17,669 ship days in the Mediterranean compared to the American 16,714. So, at first, in 1965, the Soviet Navy was basically not there in the Soviet in the Mediterranean. It was there, but it was kind of an uncommitted, kind of a sprinkling, um, <laughs> a sprinkling, if you will, of, of deployment and um, patrols and so on. And then 1967, this is when the 5th Escadra was created, kind of reorganizing and more consolidating the Soviet Navy in, in the Mediterranean. And then but in 1970, the Soviet Navy was spending more time in the Mediterranean than the United States was. Critically, according to the CIA estimates, the Soviet Navy's time was concentrated in the Mediterranean. From 1965 to 1970, Soviet ships in the Mediterranean logged an average of almost exactly 10,150 sh cumulative ship days each year. 
During the same period, only 4,500 average days were recorded annually for the USSR's time in the Atlantic Ocean, which was the second most active theater for the Soviet Navy. Because this data came from a foreign or an American intelligence report, we must account for the possibility of uncertain information. But they still tell us how important the Mediterranean Sea was to Soviet strategy. Deployments for Soviet ships in this theater were almost three times as long as, those, as for those in the Atlantic Ocean, where the Soviet Union had a coastline. The USSR didn't, in fact, have a direct coastline with the Mediterranean. A likely reason for this was the fact that Soviet ships had little access to warm water ports in the Atlantic, which prevented them from docking or disembarking during the winter. This lack of suitable year-round ports was not a problem in the war Mediterranean, and access to Syrian and Egyptian ports allowed the Soviet Navy to spend much more time there. The Mediterranean bases were not the Soviet Union's only ice-free ports, as Murmansk on the Kola Peninsula and Kaliningrad, the base of the Baltic fleet, also fulfilled this role. But Murmansk and Kaliningrad are both far from the Mediterranean, and any ships moving between those areas would use up a lot of supplies and face interception from NATO vessels. And so such trips would have been impractical for maintaining a Mediterranean naval presence. So thus, bases were a crucial part of the American-Soviet naval showdown in the Mediterranean. The American Sixth Fleet had access to ports in Italy and Spain and at the British colonies of Gibraltar and Malta. The Sixth Fleet was resupplied with shipments from tankers and other supply ships, rather than being able to stock up at a coastal base. Initially, the Soviet Union did not officially lease or own Mediterranean facilities, perhaps fearing accusations of imperialism. Before the Six Days War and the Fifth Eskadra's formation, the Soviet Union was sending military equipment and made port visits to Egypt and Syria, but otherwise its ships, again, made only limited use of Arabic naval installations. But as they helped Syria and Egypt rebuild their militaries after June 1967, the Soviet government demanded increased use of naval facilities, allowing them to set up forward bases. By maintaining a presence in the Middle East, Soviet personnel were at risk due to Israeli air raids carried out post-1967. Thus, they needed more concessions from the Arab states they were supplying. So, they were able to now dock at bases. Thanks to harboring arrangements negotiated between the Soviet government and Syria and Egypt, the 5th Eskadra could dock at local ports for repairs, resupply, and shore leave. From July 1st, 1967, Soviet vessels were authorized to dock at Egypt's Alexandria, Mirsa Matru, and Port Said. They were also allowed to use Syria's facilities at Latakia, and Tartus was accessible after 1971. A repair ship was used at Tartus, making the 5th Eskadra's mission more viable. These Syrian ports became even more vital after Sadat's diplomatic change of course prevented the Soviet Navy from docking at the Egyptian port of Alexandria. The Soviet 5th Eskadra had two important advantages over the American 6th Fleet. First, the Soviet ships were newer than many of those in the 6th Fleet. Secondly, this 5th Eskadra could receive reinforcements from the Soviet Union through the Black Sea and the Turkish Straits. This freedom was due to contingency measures allowed for by the Montreux Convention, which regulated naval ship movement in Turkish waters. Having access to bases in the Mediterranean, and with the ability to cut through the Turkish Dardanelles Straits, 
Soviet ships could directly act in this region while being relatively close to their home base in case of retreat or reassignment. By contrast, to reinforce their Mediterranean deployments, American ships would have to cross the Atlantic Ocean from their home bases. Through the 5th Escadra, the Soviet Union could show public support for its Arab allies. Between 1961 and 1971, the USSR reportedly made 44 port visits to Syria and 867 to Egypt. Not only could the Soviet Union show its flag at Mediterranean ports, it could also directly confront the 6th Fleet, albeit through reconnaissance rather than combat. There were two advantages to this. First, monitoring the 6th Fleet gave the Soviet crews valuable low-risk peacetime practice in the Mediterranean theater. Augmented with regular exercises, sometimes with the Syrian and Egyptian navies, the Soviet Navy could test new technologies and tactics, such as in anti-submarine warfare. Secondly, the Soviet naval presence was an effective deterrent and power projection instrument. It forced the Americans to rethink any intervention measures in the Middle East. For example, if the Americans wanted to send their forces to protect friendly Middle Eastern states, such as when Libya had erupted revolution in 1969, they had to consider the possible involvement of the Soviet Navy. This was not a concern before the 5th Escadra's formation in 1967. In 1963, after all, American forces were involved in Yemen's civil war without fears of Soviet reaction. But the 5th Escadra was able and ready to respond to a crisis if so ordered. With its bases in Syria and Egypt, it had, quote, again from George Lentowski, it had, quote, strategic defensive capability and a limited intervention capability. The CIA even predicted that the squadron submarines could be deployed near Sicily, Gibraltar, and other, quote, various Mediterranean choke points. Commenting on the 5th Escadra's presence and activity in the Mediterranean, Korykovtsev and Tashlikov have called it the first operational unit that could really resist the American fleet in that region. The Soviet Union also wanted to help rebuild Syria's military. Before June 1967, Syria's military suffered a series of purges while its government had to contend with multiple coup attempts. These setbacks made Syria unprepared for a large-scale war with Israel with inexperienced and incompetent officers, even though the Syrian army did fiercely defend the Golan Heights in the war's final days. There was also little coordination and military cooperation between Syria, Egypt, and Jordan. The Syrian military had lost, according to David Lesh, quote, 32 MiG-21s, almost her entire fleet, 23 MiG-15-17s, 2 IL-28s, and 3 MI-4 helicopters, about two-thirds of her air force, end quote. Soviet military equipment was desperately needed in Syria after the war. As seen earlier, the debacle gave the USSR the chance to expand its naval presence in the Mediterranean, and the Soviet Union spent a lot of time rebuilding the Syrian armed forces. In the 1970s, Hafez al-Assad kept Soviet Middle Eastern ambitions alive when he accepted Soviet advisors into his country after Sadat forced them out of Egypt. In response, the USSR rewarded Syria with more sophisticated military equipment. Assad received much of the same Soviet equipment that Egypt did during this time, such as T-62 tanks, other vehicles, and older MiG fighters. But Syria also received newer MiG-23 interceptors. During the Yom Kippur War of October 1973, Soviet forces were removed from Syrian and Egyptian territory, and the Soviet Union was also not initially informed about the Syrian-Egyptian offensive plans against Israel. 
However, it must be noted as well that during the fighting, Soviet crews for anti-air missile systems were deployed in Syria. As during the Six-Day War a few years earlier, the Soviet Union did not wish to provoke Israel or its American ally, and it wanted to end the Yom Kippur War as soon as possible. However, the Soviet Union did give some warnings to Israel as some Soviet citizens were killed in the fighting. Consequently, the Soviet Union, together with the United States, sponsored the previously mentioned UN ceasefire resolution number 338 on October 22nd. Still, the Soviet government returned to its old habit of sending Syria weapons and equipment, and Syria's wars with Israel had put Assad into a dependent relationship with the Soviet Union. After Sadat's turn towards Israel and the United States, Syria was increasingly reliant on Soviet military supplies. In June 1976, the CIA reported that since the first arms deal of 1956, the Soviet Union had sent, quote, $2.5 billion worth of military assistance to Syria, almost 90% since the June 1967 Arab-Israeli war. So this support was really ratcheted up since the Six-Day War. That was kind of the... Uh, point when the Soviet Union wanted to say, look, our allies, our Arab allies in the Middle East could, uh, they've really been pounded by Israel, so we really need to uh, support them. And so that was the Six-Day War of June 1967. That was kind of the turning point. And in 1974 to 85, according to one source, Syria bought, quote from Andrew Kreutz, about 550 Soviet warplanes 2,500 tanks, and 1,200 armored personnel carriers, end quote. By the early 1980s, the USSR had become Syria's sole military supplier, and in 1982-4, the Soviet Union sent Assad weapons to the sum of $2.8 billion. During Syria's intervention in Lebanon, advanced SAM-5 anti-air missiles were positioned near the Syrian capital. These weapons had never before been deployed outside of the Soviet Union, showing the firm commitment of the USSR to the Assad government, even if it wasn't willing to get involved in direct combat with, say, Israel or the United States, as we have talked about before. So I'll talk a little bit more about Syria's strategic value to the Soviet Union in a little bit, but in the meantime, I want to talk about economic relations between the two countries. So, as well as sending military equipment and experts, the USSR ran an extensive program of economic and infrastructural aid in Syria from the mid-1950s. On October 28, 1957, Soviet Department of Foreign Aid Chief Peter Nikitin finalized a Soviet assistance plan with the Syrian's, Syrian Defense Minister Khaled al-Azim. It included $400 million worth of investment in 19 infrastructural projects. Such initiatives included roads and rail yards around Latakia, as well as plans for a railroad factory and a dam across the Euphrates River. Such deals were important for the Syrian government, which had accumulated between 60 and $70 million in debt for Soviet weapons, according to a July 27, 1957 report. Syria needed 100 to 200 million dollars in aid to avoid bankruptcy, in fact. So the Soviet Union was able to get in and provide this aid, or wanted to provide this aid. Using information from the U.S. Department of State, R.D. McLaurin wrote in 1975 that between 1954 and 72, the Soviet Union gave Syria up to 317 million U.S. dollars worth in aid. 
However, such aid deals came with stipulations. For example, in 1966, the USSR apparently made three demands in return for help to build the Euphrates Dam. A communist had to become a Syrian cabinet minister, Saat al-Shab, a communist newspaper, had to be allowed to be published, and the Syrian communist party leader, Khaled, Khaled Bakdash, had to be allowed to return to Syria from exile. Soviet advisors helped to develop Syria's infrastructure, including its oil industry. Soviet oil shipments were imported into Syria, but the Soviet Union also wished to help transform Syria into an oil producer. In 1960, Soviet teams started exploring Syria for prospective oil drilling sites, and contracts were later created for the construction of 43 Soviet-manufactured oil tanks in Damascus, Homs, and other Syrian cities. Later in the decade, agreements were made for oil field development across the country. The Euphrates Dam project also received much Soviet help and attention. The USSR committed to helping with the project in 1957, and a construction plan was drawn up three years later. It took time for these plans to come to fruition due to Syria suddenly negotiating for a deal with West Germany. The situation changed when the Ba'ath Party took power in March 1963, however, which saw the Syrian government return to the USSR. A deal was finally made on April 22, 1966. It included a 12-year Soviet loan of $132 million at a 2.5% interest rate. According to George Lentowski, the Soviet contribution to the Euphrates Dam was so significant that the second five-year plan was, was adjusted. The dam was very important to the Ba'athist party in Syria because it was seen as forming the basis of Syria's dreams of a socialist society. The Soviet government was happy to cover more than half of the dam's cost through financing agreements. 320 Soviet technicians were also sent to help supervise the project. So that's a brief uh, thing about economic uh, relations. So there was uh, so the Soviet Union was helping Syria develop its infrastructure. Now what about cultural exchange? Because this is sort of the, uh, when you talk about diplomacy and foreign relations, you're always talking about economy, trade, uh, but also the military affairs and geopolitics and so on. But what about culture? What about education? So the Soviet Union tried to implement, quote, cultural penetration into the Middle East in a variety of ways hoping to improve the image of communism and the Soviet Union itself abroad. One tool in this strategy was education. The Soviet Union offered scholarships to thousands of Arab students to study in the USSR and in Eastern Europe. The U.S. State Department reported that between 1965 and 1968, 1,090 Syrians took advantage of such programs, more often studying in the USSR than in other communist countries. These students would have the opportunity to learn advanced skills at communist institutions, which were considered to give superior education to those in the Middle East. However, the USSR also hoped that such programs would help propagate communist ideas when these students returned to their homelands. Thus, the students would be taught both Soviet and communist theory alongside their technical or academic courses. These efforts were largely inconsistent, according to George Lanchowski. The results were disappointing from the Soviet point of view because some Arabic students re resisted attempts to indoctrination. And Lenchowski even wrote of one case in which Iraqi students in Odessa, modern-day Ukraine, complained about communist propaganda being taught while they took their engineering courses. This objection reached Moscow, and the, Soviet and the students no longer had to study the communist material. 
Usually, only the most radical Syrian students were interested in studying Soviet ideology. Also, though studying in the Soviet bloc was apparently better than studying in Syria, Western technology and science was even better in the eyes of many students. In the early 1980s, the Soviet bloc was offering 5,000 scholarships to Syrian students annually, but the Syrian embassy hoped to send more students to the United States, regardless of the Soviet-Syrian Friendship Treaty and American support of Israel. The Soviet Union and Syria were also able to show cultural connections that developed between the two countries at the International Damascus Fair. This fair is an annual exhibition in Syria's capital that first took place on September 1st, 1954. And uh, they'll notice how I say is. It actually still exists. Uh, it's still held today, though between 2012 and 2016 it was cancelled due to the ongoing civil war. At the fair, companies displayed products at pavilions from their respective home countries, but during the Cold War they gave a public manifestation of the Soviet Union's support for Syria. A contemporary author on the subject, Frederick Barghorn, lamented in 1960 that no British companies appeared at the first fair, and France was not represented either. Hardly surprising, since France was Syria's former colonial master until a few years earlier than that. The United States did show up at the fair, but its pavilion was meager and unimpressive. The Soviet Union, however, had a, quote, brilliant pavilion with scientific and technological displays. Barghorn said that such fairs were effective avenues for Soviet propaganda because they were able to demonstrate the USSR's cultural and technological achievements. Using this tool of soft power would be much less costly and risky than arms transfers or other diplomatic maneuvers, which, of course, the Soviet Union also took part in. But again, like I said, when you're talking about international relations between countries, culture, cultural events and scholarships, that's often part of the deal as well. Pravda spoke of friendly Soviet-Syrian relations at these expositions. The third Damascus Fair was held in September 1956, just after the first Soviet arms sale to Syria. On the first day of the event, September 1st, the propaganda publication said that A.A. Nikiforov, the Soviet pavilion's director, said that the USSR's government, quote, accepted an invitation to participate at the fair, guided by the friendly feelings of the Soviet people to the Syrian nation, end quote. Other Pravda articles spoke of Syrian President Shukri Kuwatli and other politicians using the exposition as a platform to denounce colonial imperialism and advertise Syria's economic growth, quote, with the help of friendly governments. The Soviet pavilion was reportedly visited with, quote, great interest. Kuwatli gave a speech wishing the Soviet Union success at the fair, and he said that the, that the displays engendered increased Syrian-Soviet cooperation. In November 1956, Pravda correspondent P. Demchenko conveyed his experience while visiting Syria during the fair two months earlier. He recalled Syria's centuries under imperial control before praising the newly independent country for its great recovery. According to Demchenko, Syria had built 900 school buildings over the past five years, doubling that number since the French mandate in Syria ended. The port at Latakia was being modernized with the help of communist Yugoslavian funds, cement and textile factories were being built as well, and the cities had advanced public transportation. Moreover, Demchenko continued, the Syrian people had a hospitable, peace-loving nature akin to that of Soviet citizens, as they treated the Soviet visitors like, quote, best and welcome guests. Syrians shouted, down with imperialism, down with the Baghdad Pact. Remember, the Baghdad Pact was an anti-communist pact set up in the Middle East at around that time. 
According to Demchenko, the Syrians who visited the Soviet pavilion saw the USSR as a natural ally and an important factor in Middle Eastern peace. Consistent with this view from Pravda, during the next Damascus Fair, the Syrian National Economy Minister Khalil Kalas stated that the USSR was the, quote, great power that backed our cause against imperialists who were supposedly trying to weaken and retake Syria. What about media? We've talked about fairs and education. What about media? The Soviet Union also used its media. As soon as the Soviet-Syrian relationship began, Arabic newspapers started devoting more space to the Soviet news agency TASS, especially in Syria and Iraq. Previously, Middle Eastern papers were mostly using Western sources of information. The local Soviet embassies helped by making their own contributions to local papers. They submitted articles on Soviet life and achievements, uh, continuing the work of the Soviet pavilion at the Damascus Fair. As for Soviet publications in the Middle East, George Lenchowski has noted that when it covered the region, which was rare, Pravda usually wrote official reports about diplomatic meetings. Otherwise, the above-mentioned articles were much like the rest. Quote from Lenchowski, Such articles invariably emphasized Soviet goodwill towards the aspirations of the Arab peoples, anti-colonialism, American imperialism, Soviet support for national self-determination and development, criticism of Israeli aggressiveness, advocacy of the National Front in which communists and other progressive forces should cooperate, and an occasional cautious praise for the reforms carried out by the governments of radical Arab states. End quote. The language barrier restricted, however, the Soviet media's influence in the Middle East, as very few Arabs could read or listen to Russian. Now, what about Soviet successes in Syria? By setting up shop in Syria, the Soviet government was able to, quote, outflank Turkey and Iraq, which were firmly in the Western camp according to Andrew Kreutz. The alliance became especially important after Turkey joined NATO in 1952 and when missile sites were established there, posing a direct threat to the Soviet Union. Turkey was perceived as a fellow militant when the Americans expressed concerns about Syria, since Turkey had bases and forces which could place pressure on the Soviet Union's Arab ally. In return, by sending weapons to Syria, the Soviet Union could threaten Turkey on two fronts, from the south through Syria, and from the north through the Soviet-Turkish border. The Syrian-Turkish front became an important strategic area, evident in the military exercises carried out on both sides. The Syrian government also received economic developmental help from non-Soviet communist states. In March 1957, for example, the Czechoslovakian government was awarded a contract to, re to build an oil refinery in Homs. In 1965, the East Germans provided $25 million worth of loans for infrastructure projects and sent a financial expert to help Syria rebuild its economy along socialist lines. And in 1966, Poland helped build a steel rolling mill. This economic cooperation with communist countries brought Syria further into the socialist camp, even though it was in Khrushchev's neutral socialist-aligned category. And not quite a communist state. So overall, with this talk of with um, geopolitics, with the military, with uh, cultural connections and economic connections with not just the Soviet Union, but also with other communist countries, Syria was being integrated into that united front, so to speak, that, that idea of socialist countries partnering with communist countries against imperialism and against colonialism and so on. Now, there were problems in Soviet-Syrian relations. For one, we must talk about communism's failure in the Middle East. 
As mentioned earlier, Arab nationalists such as the Ba'athists were not communist, either in Syria or Egypt. Robert W. Olson has noted that within Syria there was a wing known as the Neo-Ba'athists. This group was far more Marxist than the original Ba'athists, and when they gained control over the party, they spoke about the popular struggle and used other communist jargon. The Ba'ath party took power in Syria in 1963, and by 1966 the Neo-Ba'athist ideology had become dominant. They implemented socialist policy by restricting private enterprise and expanding the government's control of the economy. Hafez al-Assad, however, disagreed with the Neo-Ba'athists' emphasis on socialism. The Neo-Ba'athists had believed that they had to create a socialist utopia in Syria before defeating Israel. As we saw earlier, Assad thought in the reverse direction, focusing instead on defeating Israel and realizing the dream of national Arabic unity. When he was president, al-Assad reversed the Neo-Ba'athists' economic constraints, expanding opportunities for businesses in the construction, import, and industrial sectors. Thus ended Syria's path to becoming a fully Marxist country. In addition to Assad's reduced focus on socialist policy, many Ba'athists were also worried about the local communists' international connections. They were also concerned that communist activities in Syria would encourage the Americans to get involved in their country's internal affairs. Communism was suppressed in the Arab nationalist countries. In Egypt, during the late 1950s, for example, the authorities feared that the Soviet Union and Iraqi communists were conspiring against Abdel Nasser's government. A campaign against Egypt's communists ensued, and Soviet-Egyptian relations suffered a subsequent setback. The communists failed to gain inf much influence in Syria, even after Assad's government officially became friends with the Soviet Union in 1980. By 1981, there were two communists in Assad's cabinet, but that same government prevented Syrian communists from founding their own newspaper. Marxism was not popular in the Arab world. Idid Duisha argued that Arab culture has naturally been drawn to single leaders and not necessarily single-party politics, which the Communist Party of the Soviet Union preferred. Even though Syria's Ba'athist party was secular and treated religion with mistrust, there was also the very important factor of Islam. Remember, I talked about how Islam was considered a, a mark of Arab culture. And note, too, that the Prophet Muhammad had founded the Islamic faith in the Middle East approximately 1,400 years before the Soviet Union was created, which was merely decades old by the time of the Cold War. And so, trying to, so a Soviet Union trying to impose its young Marxist philosophy upon a, a Muslim culture that was almost to, getting close to 2,000 years old. Yeah, okay. That's, good luck with that. Atheism was also the Soviet Union's formal religious policy. And so this was a, this was a problem for, for many Muslims, and many Arabs asso associated the Soviet Union with godless belief. This connection remained in Middle Eastern minds, even when the Communist Party of the Soviet Union realized it had to abandon the Arab communists in favor of the bourgeois nationalists who persecuted them but also resisted the Soviet Union's Cold War enemies. Prime example of realpolitik instead of ideology. Hafez al-Assad's turn away from Marxist neo-Ba'athist legislation proved that Khrushchev and the other Soviet leaders were wise to follow the ideology of the United Front instead of trying to spread worldwide Marxist revolution. An article in the New York Times in 1981 surveyed multiple problems in the Soviet-Syrian relationship, despite the previous year's friendship treaty. One Western diplomat to the area suggested that the Syrian people were actually Western-oriented for the following reasons. 
One, they had a history of French colonial rule. French, not Russian, was a common language in the country as well. And many Syrians, including more than half of Assad's cabinet, were educated in France, the United States, and Britain. And also, Western publications were easy to obtain in the Ba'athist country. The Soviet Union's attempt to influence Syrian culture and society were clearly limited, thanks to Arab hostility to communism and the Communist Party of the Soviet Union's inability to completely erase the effects of the colonial past, and of course, as I mentioned, Islam. And what about Syria's neighborhood? What about the problems that Syria's neighborhood posed to the Soviet Union? We saw earlier how the Soviet Union had responded to the Israeli-Syrian conflict, but Israel was not Syria's only national security problem. In 1957, Lebanon had promised to support Syria in case of aggression, but civil war started there in 1975, which threatened to split the country along religious lines. Hafez al-Assad saw this conflict as an Israeli plot against Arab unity, and Syria eventually invaded Lebanon on June 1st, 1976. Ironically, Assad intervened to support Christian, Western-leading militias, which were losing their battle against Lebanon's leftist Muslim government and Palestinians that were fighting in its name. At the same time, Syria directly attacked Yasser Arafat's Palestinian Liberation Organization, or PLO. The USSR had great difficulty with this turn of events, as Adid Daiwisha commented, quote, The Soviets watched their client state Syria launching an offensive against a liberation movement, which had always been a close Soviet ally. End quote. But Assad was determined to stay the course in Lebanon despite Soviet pressure and even greatly reduced military supplies shipments. In 1983, Syria took further military action against the PLO, and the USSR was unable to prevent it. Andrew Kreutz briefly mentions Syrian diplomatic problems with the fellow Ba'athist country of Iraq, with which the Soviet Union had signed another Treaty of Friendship and Cooperation in April 1972. The USSR was also not able to help improve relations between these two Arabic allies. Considering Syria's conflicts with its Arab neighbors and the failure of communism to gain a foothold in the Middle East, it is evident that the Soviet foreign policy did not adequately account for the Middle East's very complicated local factors at work between its various countries and ethnic groups. So that's one thing, one important thing to remember. Okay, you have the Soviet Union supporting Syria which were, you know, the Soviet Union being a fully communist Marxist country, and then Syria being not a Marxist country, but a socialist country. So there's this idea of the united front against colonialism and so on. But just because that's the case, Syria is going to have other pro- its own problems with other Arab, um, Arab groups and other Arab countries. And the Soviet Union has to, had to try and manage that relationship, and it didn't always work that well. And so it's what my lesson there is that <laughs> you need to be careful of putting things all into a box. Oh, Russia or the Soviet Union and Syria were in the same camp, so they're always going to make they're always going to cooperate. And um, uh, Syria, as a Baathist Arab nationalist country, is always going to work well with all other Arab countries, especially against Israel. Not all the time. You saw, we just mentioned how Syria confronted the PLO, and there were issues with Iraq, another Ba'athist Arab nationalist country. So so you, you can't just 
<laughs> use a, a monolithic thing or put everything into a box where everything fits nicely. There, this group is always going to support it, e, each other. Um, this group, this one is always going to support that one. There's always going to be division within uh, an alliance or within a within a group. That's always just going to happen. Now, what about serious strategic value to the Soviet Union? We've talked about the military, but now we're going to talk a bit about strategic value overall. Egypt was of more strategic value to Moscow than Syria. Latakia and Tartus did not have as much capacity as the Egyptian ports such as Alexandria and Port Said. So the Soviet Navy could not dock as many ships in Syria as it could in Egypt. Syria was also much less politically stable than Egypt. In Egypt, the Soviet Union only had to deal with Abdel Nasser and Anwar Sadat. On the other hand, between independence in 1949 and 1971, when Hafez al-Assad took power, Syria went through 11 coups and 11 power seizure attempts. Assad attempted to stabilize the country by creating a national progressive front through the merger of Syria's Ba'athist party with other progressive organizations. In addition to encouraging private enterprise, he also relaxed censorship and made government positions more accessible. But even by the mid-1980s, a weak Syrian economy made Assad's hold on power more uncertain. However, though this instability must have caused concerns for the Soviet Union, arms deals continued to be made when Syria needed more equipment. So Egypt was possibly a more reliable strategic partner or ally, if you will. But when Anwar Sadat kicked the Soviet, um, Soviet military advisors out, and that relationship uh, went away or, or was drastically changed and Egypt went into a more Western direction, Syria was what the USSR had. There was also the issue of military power. So in 1979 and 1986, the International Institute of Strategic Studies, the ISS, produced its military balance sheets and so produced its military balance analyses. And... We can look at the military balance, like the numbers of military personnel, defense spending, number of tanks and warplanes um, for Egypt, Syria, and Israel uh, for 1979 and 1986. So when Sadat made peace with Israel in 1979, this really shows the Soviet losses in Egypt, if you will. Um, at that time, 1979, Egypt had almost 400,000 military personnel. Uh, Syria had about 230,000. Israel had um, 165,000, about 165,000. So if the Soviet Union was seeing Egypt and Syria as proxies in the Cold War with the United States and thus by extension its own proxy, Israel, the Soviet Union lost almost 400,000, um, you know, allied troops or partner troops, if you will. Then the question came up, with Syria, with having about 230,000 troops or mil 230,000 military personnel against Israel's 165,000, how was Syria hoped to counter Israel after Sadat left this Soviet-Egyptian-Syrian axis in the Middle East? So this was a, a big question. So this Syrian weakness made Soviet efforts to prop Syria against Israel much more vital, but arguably less practical. So in 1986, the ISS came out with its military balance analysis. And at this time, 
Syria had about 4,200 tanks and almost 500 warplanes. So I mentioned this because at this time, Syria was the biggest non-communist customer of Soviet-made equipment and weapons. So you had 4,200 tanks and 500 warplanes supplied by the Soviet Union. So this showed, and this was in 1986. So keep in mind that this was when Perestroika and Glasnost had begun already. Gorbachev was uh, engaging his new thinking foreign policy, which was reassessing military spending and shifting towards the USSR itself rather than on commitments abroad so much. And so commitments abroad was became less important. But still, at this time, Syria was buying a lot of military equipment from the Soviet Union. And again, complementing this, um, these 4,200 tanks and almost 500 warplanes. And just in case you're curious, Syria had about almost 400,000 military personnel compared to Israel's almost 150,000. And uh, Israel had 3,660 tanks. So it had less tanks than Syria, less men than less manpower than Syria, but it had more warplanes. Syria again had almost 500. Syria, Israel had 629. So, but even at this point, uh, at this point in the Cold War in 1986, this was again Gorbachev is reassessing commitments abroad, trying to reform the USSR within with Perestroika and Glasnost with restructuring and openness. They're still sending aid to Syria, but at this time the Cold War is starting to wind down. It's still going on, but it's starting to wind down. And so, uh, and by this time, Egypt had already been in the more Western camp in the way because it had made its separate peace with Israel, brokered by the United States. And also American uh, forces were even allowed to stay on Egyptian bases. So, this made the Soviet-Syrian uh, relationship much more uh, unilateral rather than multilateral, if you will. So the Soviet Union doesn't really have a whole lot of power projection in the Middle East at this point with the departure of Egypt from that relationship. Uh, it still had some, but you know, Syria becomes the main one, especially since uh, Syria had become the closest neighbor to, to Israel. But with the departure of Egypt... This made the relationship more crucial, but again, maybe less practical. So there you have it, about two hours of Cold War history. <laughs> so now that we have uh, talked about the Soviet and Syrian relationship during the Cold War period, now let's summarize. The Baghdad Pact and the Eisenhower Doctrine are essential to understanding the Cold War in that region. In reaction to the Soviet Union's attempts to create friendly territories in Azerbaijan and Turkey immediately after World War II, the Pact of 1955, the Baghdad Pact, denied the USSR a free hand in the Middle East by forming a wall of Western-friendly countries. U.S. President Eisenhower then formulated his anti-communist doctrine in 1957, identifying the, key, the region as a key strategic zone in the developing standoff with the Soviet bloc. The United States deployed a sizable naval force in response to Jordan's internal crisis, the Sixth Fleet. Simultaneously, the USSR's leadership accused the United States of pursuing an aggressive new form of colonialism. It also listed Syria and other Middle Eastern nations among the countries that were ideological compatible with the Soviet Union's Communist Party's claimed practice of peace building. 
The Soviet commitment to the area went beyond rhetoric, as shown in the USSR's efforts to rival the United States through Middle Eastern proxies, including Syria. There are uncanny parallels between the Soviet Union's relationships with Syria and Egypt. Indeed, it is impossible to discuss the former without discussing the latter. This is because the two Arab countries were briefly united as the United Arab Republic, as they and they had the common enemy of Israel. Soviet activities in Egypt and Syria followed almost the same pattern. They started with arms deals in the mid-1950s and subsequent ones throughout the Cold War. Every time the nations suffered heavy losses in wars against Israel, the USSR was there to resupply their militaries. The Soviet treatment of the Israeli crisis was somewhat confused or even contradictory. The Soviet Union supported Resolution 338, the Geneva Conference, and other proposed solutions. It was also sometimes reluctant to provide its Arab proxies with the most advanced weapons, fearing that they, this would embolden them to attack Israel and disrupt any peace solution. However, the USSR constantly supplied its Arab allies with weapons when needed, especially after heavy Arab losses in 1967 and 1973. Both Egypt and Syria also provided bases on the Mediterranean for the Soviet 5th Escadra, so it could conduct its operations against American naval forces in the area. The Cold, War the Cold War parallels between Egypt and Syria ended in 1979 when Anwar Sadat signed his separate peace with Israel through the United States. This about-face caused the Soviet government to concentrate on Syria, which would not directly negotiate with the Israeli enemy. Given the choice between a lasting peace or supporting Syria against the so-called imperialist pawn Israel, it ultimately opted for the latter, if somewhat reluctantly. Syria was, was useful to the USSR as a bastion against the United States. The USSR saw an opportunity to equip Syria's military with weapons it urgently needed against the American-supported Jewish country. The military was crucial to the Soviet-Syrian relationship because Moscow was able to resupply and rebuild Syria after its wars with Israel. This gave the Soviet Union the chance to project power and actively counter American movements. When Sadat forced Soviet personnel out of Egypt in 1976, Syria became the USSR's last Middle Eastern partner neighboring Israel. And while the USSR was active in other Middle Eastern countries and in North Africa, Syria was the closest to that American ally Israel. Finally, Syrian relations also gave the USSR access to the Mediterranean Sea, allowing its military to carry out extensive reconnaissance missions against the American Sixth Fleet and protect its Arab allies' coastlines. Modern Russia has a military presence at Tartos and Latakia today, a vestige of the Cold War strategic ideological partnership between the Soviet Union and the socialist Syrian state. Well, that finally wraps it up for this two-hour episode of Historical Thoughts and Interpretations. I hope you enjoyed this journey through Soviet-Syrian relations and a little bit of Cold War history. Um, stay tuned for further episodes coming up. And um, I hope to produce the next episode sometime later this month. And uh, we will be talking to you soon. Have a great one. Happy New Year. And be, please be careful and safe and take care of yourselves and each other out there. Have a good one and see you next time.